there was a day when I had a dollar eighty left in our bank account at Crossover, and I had to make a seventy thousand dollar payroll in three days' time, and there was no money, and I had to make a decision: what am I going to do right now? And the decision I made was. I'm still going to run that payroll and I'm going to overdraw our bank account and we're going to deal with the ramifications after the fact. That was the move. And I ran that payroll and the money got sent to my employees and I got a call from the bank on Monday morning going, hey, you're overdrawn by $69,999. And I go, oh my God, I don't know what happened. I'm so sorry. I'll figure it out. Don't worry. And I basically bought myself two more weeks of time to figure out the situation. And in those two weeks, I somehow managed to convince some investor to give us some more money. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Vasu Kulkarni has an interesting story. As he actually moved from California back to India, where his parents were born when he was just in grade school. Growing up mainly in India, after spending several years in the U.S., Vas lived and breathed basketball. He'd wake up at crazy hours to watch the few NBA games that aired in India at the time. Like so many kids around the world, Vas had the goal to one day make it himself and play in the NBA. He ended up moving back to the U.S. to attend college, and he thought he was going to play Division I basketball. He went to the University of Pennsylvania, and he only made it to the JV level. But Voss is resilient, like so many great entrepreneurs, and he made sure to find another route to follow his passion after college. Voss's story after the break. Success doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes coordinated, concerted efforts by you and your team, tightly connected at each step of the journey, even if they're physically apart. In this evolving age of work, productivity and mobility go hand in hand, and remote and hybrid workers need a truly mobile PC. With the Galaxy Book lineup, Samsung set out to make a PC that's more like a smartphone, thin, light, and powerful. Invest in your workforce. Invest in your future. Upgrade to Galaxy Book, the PC that helps modern businesses go further. Explore the whole range at samsung.com slash galaxy book for work. We're back. Voss founded Crossover, a sports analytics company that sold video and data tools to sports teams around the world after graduating UPenn. He literally helped pioneer the sports tech industry, and he eventually built up Crossover and sold it. He went on to find Courtside Ventures, an early stage venture fund investing in tech and media companies at the intersection of sports and gaming. He still loves to hoop more than anything. But secondly, I know he loves helping entrepreneurs follow their passion just like he did. I started our conversation by asking Vasu about the different places he grew up. Most people are born in another country and they come here as, uh, you know, when they're young. And in my case, it was the opposite. My parents were here in the U.S. So I was born in L.A. And then the 94 earthquake hit 
and our, our house was kind of destroyed. And I think for my parents, it was one of those, we came for the American dream and saw our house get destroyed moments and they decided it was time to leave the country. And so they took me back to India when I was nine years old. So I spent the first nine years in LA and then the next nine years in India until college when I came back. And so, you know, I don't remember much about those first nine years in the US. So for me, it's very much like I grew up in India and then I came to the US as an 18 year old. So growing up in America before you turned, I guess, 10 years old or nine years old, and went back to India, did you become a, a basketball fan? Like, or did that happen later? Ironically, I was a soccer player when I was here. So I actually played three seasons of soccer from ages seven, eight, nine before I left. And I never played basketball in the U.S. at all. I, I was obsessed with the game just from watching Michael on, on TV. So I, my parents used to have this old army vet that used to babysit for me when they went to school, when, when they went to, uh, to work. And he would always have basketball on in his apartment. So you know, we, I come from traditional Indian family. There's no sports on in our home, but this babysitter would always have basketball on. And I think that's where the whole basketball obsession starts from. Because from the time I was two or three years old, I've been placed in front of a television screen for eight hours a day watching basketball. And so by the time I was nine and I was really obsessed with basketball, I was supposed to actually play my first season of like YMCA basketball in 1993 when the earthquake, or 94 when the earthquake hit and the local gym turned into a center where they were housing people that had been displaced by the earthquake. And so that season actually never happened for me. So the first time I actually played organized basketball ended up being in India when I was nine or 10 years old and we had moved back. So for those, I mean, basketball and playing in India growing up, I mean, people are passionate, right? About the game. Certainly cricket is, cricket is religion. And then you have a little bit of soccer, but basketball, ironically in India is sort of the one percenters game, right? Because they don't have the infrastructure to even play basketball. Unlike in New York city, where every street corner, you have a court in India, you don't have that infrastructure. So if you don't go to a private school, you don't you really don't have access to a court to even play. And in India private school means like you're spending $500 a year, not like private school in in the US. So obviously I moved back, my parents put me in this private school. They have a basketball court. There was there was no asphalt, there was no cement. Like it was a dirt court with wooden backboards and a piece of iron that had been turned into a rim, and that's really where I learned to play basketball. And I always think about what would have happened if I had stayed in the U.S., right? There's part of me that that would always curse my parents as a child saying, I can't believe you moved me back to this country that I hate and where basketball is on two days a week at 5 a.m. on Friday morning and Saturday morning. And I have to wake up at 4.30 to watch NBA and nobody knows how to play the game here. But I ended up being a big fish in a small pond in India where I was the best player at every level and played for the state. And eventually, when I came back to college in the U.S., I had this belief in myself that I could play college basketball because I was the best player in, in, in my city in India. Versus if I had stayed in the U.S. as a five foot nine Indian kid, I don't know if I would have even had an opportunity to make the, the high school team in, in the U.S., and then I would have never even thought that I could play in college. So it's this weird, like, there's no way to know for sure what would have happened. But I always think back to that. And I say, in hindsight, it's probably a good thing that my parents moved me to India 
where I got the confidence in myself that I, I could actually play at the highest levels. So tell me about that and your decision coming back to America and, and applying to school. Where'd you end up uh, going to college and did you play basketball there? It, it was pretty much a given from the day I was born that I was going to come back to an Ivy League school, right? That's every Indian immigrant parents, uh, uh, their mantra from the time you're born is, hey, you're going to Harvard, you're going to Stanford, whatever. So obviously I get to high school and I, there's no choice. You're applying to schools in the U.S. I applied to a bunch of them, got into a lot of them, ultimately ended up deciding on Penn in Philly. So I you know, lived out my parents' Ivy League dreams for them by, by going to Penn. So I show up on campus in 2004. I'm 135 pounds soaking wet. And I go and I ask where the basketball office is because I'm like, I'm here to play Division One basketball. And I get to the, to the coach's office and he's like, who the hell are you? And I'm like, well, I was like, you know, I, I was a captain of my high school basketball team in India. And the guy's like, really? They're like, did we recruit you? I was like, I don't even know what recruiting means, but I'm here to hoop. So, you know, they, they put me through a little workout and, and, you know, they basically came back and said, listen, you do know how to play basketball, but you don't know how to play basketball at this level. You don't have the size, you don't have the strength. You definitely don't have the skill. So I, I was very, very, disappointed because I had no idea what I was I was coming here to see from a basketball standpoint. I assumed I was good enough. So the next three years were me taking protein shakes, me playing pickup basketball at the rec center three day, three times a day, every single day, got better, got better, got better. And finally, as a senior, they had tryouts once again. And so I show up for tryouts as a senior, you know, I'm baby faced. You can't, I, you know, today I still look like I'm 15 years old. So back then yeah, I looked like I was 12. And so I make the, the first cut and I'm at practice and I'm on the JV squad and about two to three weeks in to sort of tryouts and, and the season starting, the coach is like, he realizes that I'm a senior and not a not a freshman as he thought I was he comes to me and he goes dude I thought I thought you're a, a freshman I thought I'm going to be able to sort of use you on the bench for the next four years and eventually you'll be good enough to play I didn't realize you're a senior I can't put you on this team and, and so I wrote this long letter to the coach about how it was my dream to play college basketball this was it for me and if there was you know, whatever I need to do I'm willing to do it to make the squad and a lot of things had to go right. There were a couple of guys that got academically disqualified. There were some injuries. Long story short, you know how the universe all comes together. That's what happened for me. I made the squad as a senior. I got to play a full season on the JV team at Penn, had one double-digit game. My parents got to come in from India and watch me actually start a game at the Palestra and score some points. And so that was my claim to fame is uh, I became the Rudy of Philadelphia. I love it. I never knew that story, obviously, but that is amazing knowing you and, and just thinking what I'm also shocked is that there was actually academically ineligible kids at Penn, which is uh, kind of ironic <laughs> and amazing. But so you develop this passion, right? You know, you're not going to play in the NBA, although you are now back as a big fish at uh, Equinox, the gym we play in and, and playing ball there. But let me ask you, how did the concept, how did the idea come about for Crossover? And tell us a little bit about exactly what it is. So that season at Penn was really the start of this whole thing. I got to stand what coaches did in the locker room to prepare for game day. And it was a ton of putting DVDs into a computer, 
two guys sitting there, one's taking notes on paper, and they're, they're looking at things. They're fast-forwarding, rewinding, looking at plays, making notes, and then they're transcribing that into Excel or PowerPoint, and they're making a scouting report, which they then print out, and they would hand to us and say, here's your scouting report to prepare for next game. And I, being a computer engineer, and it's 2008 at an Ivy League school, I'm looking at this going, guys, this is the most backward shit I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Like, how do we not have analytics software to do this better? And that was really the moment when the light bulb went off for me. And I said, I think I can build software that will help the Penn basketball team be better. So I went back to my dorm room and I start sort of sketching out what software would look like, what the data needs to look like for us to do this. I graduate just barely. I moved to New York. I have no money. And so I get this, uh, this consulting job that paid me $60,000 a year and that Thank God they hired me. Like somebody was willing to give me a job so I could pay my bills in New York and started, I started working on crossover. And the irony is you know, those, I graduated in 2008. So literally the world had just ended. Bear Stearns has collapsed. There's no work for anyone in consulting because nobody's spending money. And somehow this company kept me employed for 18 months, despite there being no projects for me to put me on. And so I just spent those 18 months essentially working on my own company and 18 months in, I managed to raise $300,000 from some angel investors. I quit my job and essentially started officially full-time running crossover. And the, the concept was essentially every single team at that time was recording their games, whether it was on a, on a really shitty Sony camcorder or hiring someone to, to do it professionally. There was video footage at the high school level, at the AAU level, college level. Everyone was recording video but they didn't know what to do with that video after the fact. And so they would do what my coaching staff at Penn would do, which is sit there for four hours and watch the film and take notes. And I said, well, this is work that a coach should not be doing. This is something that some random intern could be doing, which is what the division one teams and the NBA teams do. But if you're a high school basketball coach, you don't have interns that are doing this work for you. So we essentially said, we'll be your outsourced video coordination service. You record the game, you upload it to us, you go to bed, coach, and by the time you wake up the next morning, we would have broken down everything that happened in that game. We would have compiled all the data, and we'll give you reports that look like literally an NBA video coordinator had spent all night doing the work, but it's all being done by a battalion of people that we have along with a bunch of, of data scraping algorithms that will, that will create all these beautiful reports. So literally any high school coach could come in the next morning after a game and say, you know, show me every time we ran a pick and roll on the right side of the floor in the fourth quarter and little Johnny took a jump shot and we could, and he could instantly pull up every clip of that happening. And so, you know, we started with, with one customer. I still remember our very first customer. It was 2010, a school in, in Massachusetts called King Philip High School in Rentham, Massachusetts. The coach met me at this uh, at this high school coaching event. He paid $900. He sent me a check for $900. It was the first dollar in revenue I've ever earned. $900 check to buy our software. His team had been on a 63-game losing streak. They had not won a game in two and a half seasons. And so he buys our product, and he basically became my beta user and guinea pig for everything we did that entire year. So the whole summer we worked with him, he uses our software that season and they went to the state championship game and lost in the championship. So that was sort of our, our, our moment where we said, 
hey, this shit works. Like you can use data to be better at sports. And it's something that baseball had done for a long time with Billy Bean, but none of the other sports had really adopted it at that time in a meaningful way. And definitely not below sort of the NBA and top tier division one levels. And here we were making a difference to a high school basketball team that hadn't won in, in two and a half years. And from there, it sort of took off. And, you know, over the next eight years, we had 10,000 teams around the world that, that bought our product and hopefully won more games. For me as a basketball junkie, I got to live the dream of meeting every coach. I met John Calipari and Coach K and Phil Jackson and LeBron James and Michael. I met everybody. And so it was just a joyride for me for eight years of, of not being good enough to play in the NBA. But this was second best for me of really being able to hang out with the guys that I wish I would have been good enough to play ball with. More from our guests. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you sell your time as a freelancer, Square is here to help make your work-life balance better. Whether you're a lawyer, consultant, accountant, photographer, designer, or another type of professional, Square's suite of tools all work together and make it easy to stay organized without having to work at staying organized. Some of the things you can do with Square include sending out custom estimates to help bring in more clients, Accepting any type of payment customers want to use, wherever they want to pay. Taking payments in person, over the phone, through your computer, through your email, or even text. And you will get the analytics from real-time reports that show you what's working best. Square software is all built to work together, so you can spend less time on paperwork and more on your actual work. Square works so well because it takes care of business so you can take care of your clients. Learn more at square.com. And our next sponsor. Being a small business owner can be so fulfilling, rewarding, and let's be honest, a little scary from time to time. Doing your own thing and being your own boss is great, but sometimes it can make you feel like you're all alone, especially when things aren't going great. Well, the folks at State Farm want you to know you're not alone. State Farm has thousands of agents who are small business owners too, so they know what it takes to protect everything you've worked so hard for. State Farm has an assortment of insurance policies for small businesses that can be tailored to your needs. So whether you're a hairstylist, an electrician, or a florist, State Farm agents are ready to help. Learn more and find an agent today at statefarm.com slash small business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode of How Success Happens is being presented by State Farm. And we're back. Just thinking about it, you know, we're, we're only talking maybe 10 to 12 years ago, right? But were you shocked? Like, I'm, I'm shocked listening to you thinking like how we weren't using data and analytics back then. Like it's not too long ago, considering what's happened today. Totally. So the funny part is the whole idea for crossover, apart from my spending that one year on the team, it actually came from my sophomore year of college. I did an internship in India at this company that my dad's friend was running. And I learned, I did no work, but what I learned was how business intelligence platforms worked. And this guy was building a BI system that rivaled IBM and some of the bigger players. He was just a smaller SaaS product. 
that was building in business intelligence tools. And so I saw how he was pulling in data from companies like Walmart, which I think was a, was a customer of theirs. And they would take in information on a minute by minute basis, what was being sold in which store across the country. And they would give you this dashboard that would let you come in and say, well, show me how white t-shirts are selling across the country. And you could see literally in real time how basic white t-shirts were moving. And that would allow them to then determine where they would place their supply chain centers, how many units to order for different regions in the country. And I sat there thinking, wow, like I can't believe that this is the granular level to which a company like Walmart is able to look at their data. And why can't we do that for sports? But enterprises were just starting to use data 20 years ago in a very meaningful way, 10 to 20 years ago, right? And so sports is always a little bit behind because with enterprise companies, there's P&L, there's, there's actual revenue ROI that you see from using data and analytics versus in sports, it's hard to quantify the ROI that you get from using software because it's wins and losses, but it's hard to quantify that into, into US dollars. And so I think that you always see a little bit of a lag between what the biggest companies in the world are doing and then what the sports world eventually adopts. So for me, it was just sort of perfect timing where I had seen this work with enterprises a few years prior. I was seeing the bigger NBA teams starting to adopt analytics and technology. And I said, well, the NBA is not a big enough market. There's only 30 teams, but we have 20,000 high schools in the country. We have 4,000 colleges in the country. That's the market that we should be going after. And, uh, and so we were the first ones to bring data to, to that level. How hard was it for you to raise money initially and get the business going? Oh, my God. It was, without a doubt, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. You know, 2008, again, you look at the venture ecosystem today, the number of incubators and accelerators and the number of funds that exist. I mean, everybody and their mother is running a venture fund today. In 2008, there were two incubators in the country. And the world had literally just ended. I mean, it had. we were in a depression. And so I'm coming out of college. I've never done anything in my life, never earned a dollar, have no track record. I have no network. And I'm out here pitching sports analytics as an idea. And people are going, sports analytics? What the hell is that? Like, who's going to spend money on that? And, and so literally, it was the hardest thing I've ever done to raise that first $300,000. But even when I got that business to 10 million in recurring revenue, I could not raise venture capital because venture capitalists did not believe in the sports market being big enough. And so ultimately, you know, we ended up selling that business in 2017 when we had gotten to 10 million in, in revenue to some private equity guys and we moved on. But that was the impetus for me to start Courtside Ventures right after I sold Crossover because somebody needed to fund entrepreneurs who were doing things in the sports, fitness, gaming realms, which traditional VCs had just ignored for, for decades. And so it was really hard right up until the end. I got lucky that I met a ton of NBA and NFL owners along the way who ended up being my, my venture capitalists. So it was never institutional money, but it was guys like Dan Gilbert and Stephen Ross and, and Leslie Alexander. Those are the guys who ended up eventually funding this business to the point that we could grow it and sell it. Do you ever wonder how different it might have been? Because you remind me kind of like an NBA player who maybe played in the 70s or 80s. And, and they're always saying like, the guys who played in the 90s made so much money. The guys who played in the two now, they're like, 
Do you think it may have been different? I mean, you really started the trend, so to speak, for putting money into sports data and analytics companies. As we talk about now, they're throwing money at, at anything, it seems like. So do you think it would have been a different story for you? I mean, you did exceptionally well, but you ever think about it? There's two answers to that, right? I think everything in life is timing. So I could sit here going, man, I wish I had started this company five years later, seven years later, because now you literally have these massive companies that are going public that could have been acquirers of our business. And obviously, a strategic buying you is always better than private equity buying you, right? It, it just always happens. So I could think that way. But the other answer to that is we were the pioneers when we started. If we waited seven years, somebody else would have done this. And I don't necessarily know that somebody starting a sports analytics business today going after this market can beat the incumbents. It probably would have been too late. So it's always what ifs. And, you know, I've learned in my life to never have any regrets. I, I don't have a single regret other than one, which is I never got to see Michael Jordan play in a real basketball game live. I've seen him play a pickup game at camp when I was 18 years old, but I never saw him play for the Bulls. And that is my one regret in life. Other than that, I have none. Well, as a Knicks fan, uh, I've seen him play enough. I like him now, but unfortunately, many two daggers to the heart. But And now you get to watch me play on a similar level, uh, I'm sure. You're like the Charles Oakley of our gym. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> That's like, I remember with Oakley, I used to always be like, don't shoot, don't shoot. But then he would hit that like foul line jumper and you'd be like, oh, okay. I'll take Oakley. Your shot has gotten really good over the years. I got to say like that little mid-range game, you've, you've even extended it out to about 13, 14 feet now. <laughs> I'll take that. I like, I like my defense, my defense. I, I'm like you, I like you hustled from the beginning. I'm not saying you hustle now on the court, but you've hustled from the beginning. And like, <laughs> that's how you got this dream going. You made, you built crossover were there chat? There must have been days. Were there days you were just like, maybe I, I should go to Wall Street or I should be doing something else as a consultant? Never that I should go get a job because I knew probably from the time I was five years old that I was unemployable. I have always been a hustler that was selling something. You know, I sold candy to kids in, in middle school. I sold DV, like pirated DVDs of movies and music and what not to kids in high school. I put myself through Penn running an eBay store out of my dorm room, right? So like, I've always been an entrepreneur and I always will be an entrepreneur. So for me, sort of going and getting a corporate job was 100% out of the question. And, and to this day, it's out of the question. I, I could never do it. But there were days, many, many days where I thought I was barking up the wrong tree. I did not think we could build a business here. I didn't know how we were going to raise money. I didn't know how we were going to make payroll. I mean, there was a day when I had a dollar eighty left in our bank account at Crossover, and I had to make a $70,000 payroll in three days' time, and there was no money. And I had to make a decision, what am I going to do right now? And the decision I made was, I'm still going to run that payroll, and I'm going to overdraw our bank account, and we're going to deal with the ramifications after the fact. That was the move. And I ran that payroll and the money got sent to my employees. And I got a call from the bank on Monday morning going, hey, you're overdrawn by $69,999. 
And I go, oh my God, I don't know what happened. I'm so sorry. I'll figure it out. Don't worry. And I basically bought myself two more weeks of time to figure out the situation. And in those two weeks, I somehow managed to convince some investor to give us some more money. I mean, that, that's what you do. And I also, when I went into my lead investor's office and I said to him, Jeff, I, I don't think this business is going to work. I think we need to pivot. I'm going to go build a video game company in sports. He, and he, he just yelled at me like, what are you like? Are you out of your mind? Like, just stick with your guns, stick to the business. It'll work out. You know, I'm glad he did because eventually the business did work out. But there are so many moments along the way where you question your sanity, but you just you just have to stick with it. At the same time, I will say it, it takes guts as an entrepreneur at some point to say to yourself, okay, maybe I was barking up the wrong tree and maybe I need to pivot. And that's just never an easy thing to do. And so I do have portfolio companies now as a VC that have done a full 180 degree pivot into something that has absolutely nothing to do with the original idea. And I think it takes guts to be able to do that as well. So just as hard as it is to stick with your guns and see something through, it also takes just as much balls, I think, to to tell yourself and realize that maybe you were wrong, because not every idea is going to work out and to change course and, and go do something else. But for me, and, and I think for most entrepreneurs that, that we back as a fund now, I don't think any of these guys or girls are capable of, of going and working a corporate job. Like, if you're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. And so you're just going to change course and go do another company. You're not going to ever go get a real job, if you will. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I, I just think I'm very similar where it's very hard for me to, to be employed and starting up another business now. And it's just corporate America is very difficult when you have that desire, that hunger and wanting to follow your passion, which you did. You talk about these challenges and that's an amazing one with payroll. Do you recall the time when maybe you thought to yourself, wow, this thing, this thing is really working? Like, was there a specific client or moment? So a big one for us, apart from the first ever customer having that insane comeback story, was in 2012 when we got Kentucky Basketball to be our first big Division I client. And of course, that was the year they had Anthony Davis. And of course, that was the year that, that they win a national championship. And I, I really don't think we can take any credit for Anthony Davis and what those guys did on the court. But it was one of those moments where we were able to take what had happened, which was honestly pure luck for us to have gotten them as a customer and for them to have won a national championship, to then go out there and be able to say, hey, this team just won a national championship. And they were, they were our one customer in Division One, And so, ah, Maybe there's something there, right? And 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 Calipari was a big proponent of our product. He would go out there and he'd tell high school coaches all the time to use crossover. And uh, and so th- th- those were the moments where I think you need those little wins along the way. If you don't have those, even, even if they're not really your wins, but they're wins that tell you and your team and everyone, hey, there's something bigger going on here and we should stick with the mission. I think that was a big one for us that that helped us keep going. And then after that, you know, it just became sales, a sales thing, right? You, we built a sales team at 25 young guys and girls that would pick up the phone, call high school coaches all day long. But I think more than anything else for me, the thing that made it all worthwhile was the people. Like I can go and talk to any of the 120 people who worked for Crossover over the years 
And every single one of them will speak fondly on their whatever time that they had with us. They will say that it was the best job they ever had. And it had nothing to do with the money. If anything, like we were paying startup dollars. So people were not making more money working for us. But it was the environment that we created, the culture that we created. And if you were a sports fan, there was no better place in the world to work than Crossover for those eight years when we when we were running our business. And many of my guys and girls have gone on to, to work for big companies now. Many of them have started their own companies. But no matter what happens, everybody always comes back. When we do a, when we do a Crossover reunion, when we do a happy hour, wherever, Everyone who's in town will always come over and everyone has nothing but great things to say about their time. And for me, that's the number one thing that matters. If it's not about how much money anybody made or didn't make along the way, it was, did you have a great time working with us and our team? And, and I can say that they did. How did the acquisition come about? What made you end up selling? Because I do recall you coming into the gym that weekend with a big smile on your face. But how did that go down? <laughs> well, it was funny. This group had had come to us a year prior and had talked to us and we said, ah, you know, you guys are private equity guys. I don't think this is the right place for us to, to sell to. And then they moved on and then they came back around about eight or nine months later and they said, hey, look, we've just raised another pile of money from private equity and we're doing this roll up and we, you know, we really think that your asset would fit in well here. At that point, we, we had reached 10 million in revenue. I didn't see a path, honestly, for the business to to go from 10 to 20 and 20 to 40 and 40 to 80. Like that 100% growth that you need in technology, I did not think it was going to happen. I thought we were going to go like 10 to 13, maybe 14 if we got lucky, right? And so when those growth rates start to get into the, the double digits, the low double digits rather than triple digits, you can be in trouble. And if you hold on too long, there might never be a buyer for your business down the road. And so we sort of, as a board, looked at the situation, looked at the fact that there were not any big funds that were investing in our space, the fact that we had gotten to a certain point, we'd been running this for eight years, and how much we thought we could grow over the next several years. And we said, well, there's an offer on the table. We better take it seriously. So we, you know, we kicked off the process with them, reached out to a couple other potential buyers, Ultimately, you know, the thing with sports still is there aren't that many deep pocketed buyers out there. So we ultimately ended up making a business decision to sell the business when we did. Look, I hate selling to private equity. I think private equity ruins most businesses as they did with ours. They made a bunch of promises about who they would or would not fire. And they kept zero of those promises. Literally the day after they closed, they kept zero of those promises. I did not know any better. This was my first rodeo selling a business. I didn't know any of these things. I said, great, like my board wants to do this. My investors want to do this. All right, we're going to do this. But then the horror of having to watch them fire people and lay people off from your team to watch them take everything you've built over eight years and turn everything into lines on a spreadsheet. It, it was tough. It was really, really hard for me to watch that for a year. And they kept me around for a year just to make sure nothing went wrong, I guess. But by the end of that year, I had had it. I was, I can't do this. I, a venture guy, I build things. I feel like entrepreneurs and venture guys are builders. And then private equity is all about, about squeezing every last piece, every last drop of juice that you can from someone 
right? And and I got I got to watch that, and it was a learning experience for me. Now moving forward in my life, not to ever want to go through private equity again if I can avoid it. And then they eventually sold the business off to another buyer, and yeah, it was it was just rough to see. But but when I sold the business, one of the things that I was somewhat happy about was the fact that it was going to a group that was going to keep it alive, and that was and that twenty years from now crossover would still be a thing. And there would, you know, maybe if I ever one day had kids, which I doubt I will, but if I did and they played sports, they would get to use crossover when they were in high school or college. And I could say, Hey, we built that. Right. And then when they sold the business to a competitor and they basically killed their business and took all of our customers and put them on their own platform, that was probably an even Saturday for me when I heard that they had sunset the platform and it was dead because that was a decade of work just completely killed. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't say it better myself, having had experience selling a business initially and in, into private equity. I, I didn't understand as well the concept behind private equity and really, like you said, cleaning up wherever you could to make the business more valuable and then just reselling it. And it really, when you look at that model, like you mentioned, the hardest thing is seeing those employees and people where I know you personally, and I know like the thing you would want more than anything, more than dollars, more than anything would be like you talked about having that culture and that environment where you could just enjoy yourself. So I could only imagine how difficult that was for you, but you, you certainly learned from it. And all of a sudden I find out you had sold the business and, and you're at, you're a VC guy, you're a courtside ventures. How did, how did that happen? And tell us about Courtside because, I mean, many of the listeners might know, but it's a really interesting business and some of the people behind it. Yeah, so the idea for Courtside really came about about probably about nine months or so before we ended up selling, uh, well, nine to 12 months before we ended up selling Crossover. As I said, it was so hard for me to raise capital that I felt that somebody needed to build an institutional fund to back founders like me at the early stages when we have ideas in these verticals. And so I went to Dan Gilbert, who was uh, my biggest investor in Crossover at the time, the owner of the Cavs. I kind of told him this idea. And Dan said, hey, that makes sense. You should launch a fund to do this. And I'm happy to write the first check. So he wrote a $20 million check into our fund on day one. And then we went to WPP, the world's biggest advertising firm, and we sort of pitched them on this. And they said, look, we have a ton of, of clients that would be strategic for you. We'll go ahead and write a check. So between Dan and WPP, a $20 million check, $15 million check, it was the easiest fundraise in history. My life will never be that easy ever again. And I can tell you that as someone who has raised another fund after that, it was a lot more painful to raise that next one. But I got extremely lucky that I had two people that were willing to back us on day one. And so we had a $35 million fund and we set out to prove to people that you could actually make money investing venture returns in sports fitness and gaming, three areas that we felt were underrepresented by other funds, and also where we felt the next generation was spending their time and money. So that is the overarching thesis of our fund is that every generation that comes after the next has vastly different ways in which they think about life, where they put their wallet share, and where they spend their time. So if you look at me, obviously, you know, you've known me for 13 years. I spend every waking moment at the gym. I live across the street from the gym so that it takes me 30 seconds to get there, right? My entire life has been set up around how do I get to Equinox in under a minute to play basketball? My parents 
never had a gym membership in their life. They've never been in a gym, right? You talk about how we work, how we think about our careers. For me, I refuse to work in any industry other than sports because that is what I love more than anything in life. My parents, for them, a job was a job, right? It was a means to pay their bills. My dad was an engineer. My mom was a pharmacist. And they've never once in their lives thought about a career and any of that. They've just, it's a job and I got to put food on the table for my family. And they did an unbelievable job of that. But it's very different to the way that I think about life and probably the next generation will. And so for us as a fund, we're always looking at what are the verticals and the and the places where the next generation is spending their time and money. And that's where we want to invest. And so our thesis continues to evolve. In fund one, it was really sports, fitness, and a little bit of gaming. In fund two, we saw this resurgence in collectibles and the idea that both physical and digital collectibles, things like trading cards, sports memorabilia, watches, sneakers, all of these things had gone from things that were little hobbies into full-blown asset classes. There were people making money off of them. There were people quitting their job just to, to now buy NFTs and trade them. And so we are now a sports, fitness, gaming, and collectibles fund. And by the time we get to fund three or fund four, there might be something else that's come along in the world that says, oh, and that, that makes us think, okay, we need to expand into that as well. But we always will remain sort of a, a fund that is very narrowly focused on things that we enjoy, that we love, that we're passionate about ourselves as the fund managers, because that to me is the best way to invest. If, if you know everything about a certain industry because you love it and you live and breathe it, then investing in winners becomes so much easier. So when you look at our first fund, we were the first money in StockX, the world's biggest sneaker marketplace. I'm a sneaker guy. We saw the rise of sneakers and how much was happening on the secondary market. And we put the first money into StockX. I'm a huge sports media guy. I consume a ton of sports content. When The Athletic started and they were creating such high quality sports content, we were the first money in The Athletic. We led their seed round, their Series A and their Series B. And eventually, you know, they've gone on to build a... Uh, you know, close to a hundred million dollar recurring revenue business now selling sports media subscriptions. And so that's how we think about everything that we invest in. It's me and my three partners. We've been investing together now for over five years. Again, you talk about culture, like there was culture when I built a company with 120 people. And then there's culture when you're dealing with three people. And the things that we've learned along the way are life's just too short to work with people that you don't truly enjoy working with. So a lot of people ask, you know, are you going to raise a $200 million fund, $500 million fund in the future? My answer is no, because if I have to go raise a $500 million fund, this becomes an HR exercise and me having to hire 20 more people and deal with all of that, which I've done in the past. But now I just want to work with two or three people that I really get along with well that we can joke about, we can go to sports games, we can do whatever together, we get along perfectly, we don't argue, and we can just invest in the next generation of companies that are that are going to change the world. So that's uh, that's what we've been up to for the last five years now. Yeah, no, it's, it's really amazing. And as you talk about having that opportunity, right? I, I had parents very similar, was putting food on the table, and now this opportunity, funny enough, 
years before you, I, I moved into the, uh, onto the Upper West Side just so I can go at the time Equinox was Reebok and just to play basketball. And I aligned myself. And then I moved into a building with a, a softball batting cage, right? So I could just go downstairs and I've always followed my passion too within sports. And we're really fortunate in this generation, especially here in this country to be able to do that and go for it. And you've really, you've proved that out. And when you do look at investments into these companies, how much of it is about the idea and, and how much of it is about the person who's behind it? I think every VC has their own set of criteria, right, on what's most important. I think for us, almost everyone will say the founders are the most important. And I agree with that. I do think the founders are extremely important because what you need to know is that these people are willing to sacrifice the next 10 years of their lives, probably not make a lot of money, and have a 99% chance at the end of it of walking away with $0. So in many ways, you have to be an insane person to be an entrepreneur because the odds are so stacked against you that you are better off going, if you're a smart person, going and getting a job on Wall Street or in, in management consulting or wherever, where you're almost guaranteed to eventually one day get to the point where you're making a half a million to 750 grand and you're going to live a very comfortable life. So I think the founders are extremely important. But for us, when it comes to generating venture returns, I think the most important thing more than anything else is market size. Is, this, is the size of the opportunity large enough that if everything goes extremely well, the stars align, you execute perfectly, that you can generate a several hundred X return from the seed stage when you put money in. That's what you have to believe. And so I think that you can take mediocre founders and build a mediocre product in a massive market and you can have a huge winner on your hands. What you can't do is take incredible founders, mm. build an incredible product in a tiny market and expect to generate venture returns. It will never happen. So our job really is finding both of those things. It's finding really, really smart founders that are willing to give their, their next 10 years, but have come up with an idea for a market size that is big enough or that we believe can expand, right? So when you, you look at Uber and you look at the size of the taxi market, you would not have said that that can be a $100 billion company. But what Uber really did was they expanded that market and people that would have never maybe taken a cab are now getting into an Uber. So they really, you, you have to either believe the market size is already there or that the market size can be expanded. So, the, you know, and those are not easy things to determine and, and we're wrong. 70% of the time, despite all the diligence we do and how picky we are, you know, we look at 6,000 deals a year and we pick 10 of them and we're still going to be wrong at least 70% of the time on those, on those deals. It's really going to be two or three deals out of every 30, uh, 30 investment fund that end up returning 3x, 4x, 5x the fund and the rest of them kind of either die or just return capital over 10 years and they're as good as... Uh, a zero for us. So the venture game is crazy. Uh, but I think that you know the, the best thing that I ever heard in terms of advice and venture was you don't have to do every great deal in venture, but every deal you do must be great. When I heard that, I said, man, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard because every time we're looking at a deal, we're like, it's always FOMO with VCs, right? It's always the fear of missing out on that one big massive winner. And the reality is there will always be massive winners. They will always come. You can miss them. It's fine. We missed on SoRare 
at a $6 million valuation. Today, they're worth $3.8 billion, just literally two years later, would have returned our entire fund four times over. It doesn't matter. There will be another one that comes along. And as long as we can do great deals consistently well, it's fine if you miss on some of them along the way. Yeah. Well, you hit on StockX because I saw they were about a a $3 billion valuation the other day. And actually the yep. founder, the yep. founder has come on the show. I know he's no longer there, Josh, but what an idea. What a, what a concept. Like you said, it's amazing to me what's happened within sports and with NFTs now and just college sports. It's, it's really incredible. I'm sure you're going to you know, have tons of opportunities. Like you said, you do 6,000. That's, that's pretty amazing. I'm going to have to let you go, but I, I want to ask you before you leave, if you were to talk about your basketball game, how would you, and put it into also maybe how you work off the court in business, what aspect of your game would you say is very similar to your aspect of how you do business? I like to think that I am just a laid back guy that when you need me to get something done, I'll get it done for you. Right. And so on the basketball court, you don't see me. I don't yell at people. I don't get in fights. I'm not the most aggressive guy out there. I'm not getting myself in, in the middle of a rebounding battle in the paint. I'd rather stay healthy, but if you need a bucket, you know you can give me the ball and I'm going to get you a bucket. And that's how I think about life. Like life's too short to be anxious about things, to be worried about things. Like I'm cool as a cucumber every single day. I love what I do. But when there's a business deal to get done, you give me a call and I'm going to put out all the stops. Whatever you need to get that deal done, I'm going to get it done. And, and that's why I love working with athletes. You know, a lot of the people that I've hired over my time at Crossover, and then the folks that I work with now at, at Portside, everyone's an athlete. And, and the thing that I've learned about athletes is from the time that we're young, we learn the difference between winning and losing on a daily basis. We learn that you can't win every game. Michael Jordan did not win every game, right? And, and so you sort of learn to pick yourself up from that loss, and you know that tomorrow's another game. But more than anything, when you have a big loss, when you win it, when you lose a championship game, you know how that feels. And it's the worst feeling in the world. And you don't want to feel that ever again. And so you want to get better from it and you want to go and win the next one. And that's what I love about working with athletes in the business world, that I know that they're willing to run through a wall. I know that they know what it feels like to lose. And I know that they're going to do whatever it takes to try to make sure they never feel that way again and that we're going to win the next one. And I will say... You are not lying. You definitely, it's really funny when I think about it and I think about your game, exactly what you said. Need it in the big moment, you're definitely clutch. So, Voss, thanks for uh, coming on the uh, podcast. I actually really enjoyed it. And uh, I'll probably see you over at the basketball court sooner than this uh, episode comes out. So, in any case, thanks for coming on. (laughs) Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. See you soon. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. 
If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N. Or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business. Or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.